Welcome to the Harvest Bible Chapel of Winston-Salem podcast. We believe in proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship, believing firmly in the power of prayer, and sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. For more information, visit harvestws.org. Here's this week's message. So great to just be back together again. Mark said it. Every time we gather together is an awesome time of celebration and just reminding ourselves that we are victorious through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And we have that hope every day that we give up, get up that 1 Peter 1 says it's a living hope. It's a hope that we can have every single day regardless of our circumstances. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you are new with us, we've been walking through this book since the beginning of our year. And we'll be wrapping up here in a few weeks And it'll be here before we know it, and we are in Nehemiah 9 today, uh, jumping back into it after last week and uh, taking a break from that on Easter Sunday. Let me give you the definition of the title that we gave this series, The God Who Builds. Here's what we mean by that. That God is faithful to remember and act upon His promises to build His people and His church for His glory. That that's what we have been looking at in every verse and every chapter as we've walked systematically through this book is this reality that we serve a God who is always building. Which means he never takes a nap, he never takes a break, he never uh, doesn't um, answer the phone. He's always there, always ready, always interceding, he is always working. Like that's... The God that we serve in the Godhead, those three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are all working together, and their desire is to build in your life, to build what is not there, to rebuild what you, our circumstances, may have torn down, that we serve a God, praise the Lord, that builds. And as he's building his people, that means also on this side of the cross that he's building his church, not just this local church. But every church that stands on the name of Jesus Christ that he is building, he has chosen his church to be the means to reach those who have never heard or have yet to hear about Jesus Christ, that he has given the church that mandate and that responsibility, and God is building. And so we find ourselves today in Nehemiah chapter 9, and we're not going to be able to read every single verse in this chapter this morning because of time But we are going to make sure that we understand this chapter. And so what I do want to do, getting right into it this morning, is I want to start reading verses, starting in verse 1 and read through verse 3 to get us going. You ready for that? Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, look at what it says. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israels gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Now here's what you have to understand. Remember we started this in chapter 8 where all of a sudden, remember in chapter 8 verses 4 through 8 is the people have gathered together. Remember now they've inhabited the city of Jerusalem. The walls are built and Nehemiah understands, okay, the walls are built. Now I need to point our attention to make sure that we're not just building the city, but we're building the people. And so they move in and now they're all there. They're all gathered together and Ezra comes on the scene and he, they build a platform for him and Ezra opens up 
the book of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and he begins reading, and many people have never heard this before, and there's tremendous celebration. We see that in chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. We see that they remember that there's things that they were called to celebrate that they had not done since Joshua led them into the land, into the promised land, so hundreds and hundreds of years. So they celebrate this feast of booze, which represents God's provision for them as they left Egypt and went into the promised land. And so as they're reading this, we see that there's a first reading in chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, where Ezra reads this. Then there's a second reading in verses 14 and 15 in chapter 8, which tells them, hey, there are things that you have forgotten to celebrate in regard to God's provision. And so there's that second reading that motivates them to celebrate and worship God and now we find ourselves in chapter 9 in this third time that they read God's word and this time they focus on confession and repentance see in in this culture this idea of fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust or ashes on your head symbolized the mourning And what they're doing in this chapter, the people of Israel, is they're mourning over their sin. The sin that has actually caused them to be in captivity. The sin that has caused them to worship other gods rather than worshiping God for who he is as the one true God. They're mourning because they they forgot to observe what we find the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so they're mourning and they're confessing and they're repenting over their sin. And now we come to verse 3. It says, And they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. So for three hours. So like, if you ever notice, like, like so far, like they're either reading God's word for six hours. Now we have three hours. And we go crazy when we go past, right? Like an hour and a half, right? Um, don't, don't get scared. We're not doing that today. For a quarter of the day, three hours, and spent another quarter, another three hours in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So three hours of reading God's word, three hours of confessing and repenting and worshiping God. That's what is going on in these first three verses. And what I find interesting is it reminds us of this reality, and maybe you're new to this, that when God's word is opened, it always either brings rejoicing and celebrating and worship, but it also brings confessing and repentance. That that's what God's word does. That it brings me to a place to realize this is where I've gotten off kilter. This is where I've gotten off axis. This is where I need to bring myself back to and back to reality. I love what Hebrews 4.12 says. I love this verse. That the writer of Hebrews says this about God's word. It says, for the word of God is alive and active. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All of it. Not some of it. Not just the passages, not just the book of Psalms. All of it. All of God's word is breathed out by God. And here, the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates I love the, the, the language here. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Like Hebrews 4.12 says, this book 
that we hold in our hands, that we open up every time that we gather, that hopefully you're opening up every day in your own time with the Lord, that you're opening up when you get into your life group this week, that this word is different, this book is different than any other book. It's alive and it's active. These are God's words. They're breathed out. Case in point, just think about, just think about your life. I think about my life. I mean, I, I, I'm a PK, I'm a pastor's kid, and I survived, right? So praise God for that. But I've, I've heard a lot of messages, heard a lot of sermons. You know what I find interesting is that oftentimes you're listening to a message and you're like, did that preacher have my house bug this week? Did he just hear the conversation that my wife and, had, wife and I had as we were driving here? Like, did they just hear the conversation um, that I had with my boyfriend or girlfriend this past week? And you're saying to yourself, how in the world does that pastor know what's going on? Even worse, who told him? Who told him? Who spilled the beans? And the reality is, you know, that's the beautiful thing about God's word because the Holy Spirit knows. And he takes God's word and he knows right where to place it in the way that it needs to, to bring us to a place of confession and repentance. You ever experienced that? I know I have. I can sometimes even hear a sermon and the sermon has nothing to do with what God speaks to me about. Why? Because it's what Hebrews 4.12 says. It's living and it's active. And what I love when we look at the children of Israel here in Judah is that when God's word is open, it just doesn't bring celebration and worship and praise. But now they find themselves where they're saying, God, we got to own our sin. And we got to confess it. And we got to repent of it. So here's the title of this message this morning if you're taking notes. Repentance. An event or a lifestyle? An event or a lifestyle? You know, being growing up in a Christian home, one of the things that we would do every year in our youth ministry is we would go to camp. Here we do retreats throughout the year. And for us, growing up, we would go to camp in the summer. And so I remember as a teenager going to camp in the summer that, that it was almost like... Because we did it every year that I would literally find myself saying, all right, we're going to, some, we're going to the camp here in this location, and sometimes it'd be different places, but, but nevertheless, we would, I would, we would go to camp, and I'd be thinking to myself, all right, I know what's going to happen by the end of the week is I'm going to need to confess and repent of some things. And even in spite of what my youth pastor would encourage us with, I would find that growing up, I started to view repentance and confession of sin as an event rather than a lifestyle, rather than an everyday occurrence. Listen, repentance, first of all, is more than an apology. It's more than an apology. See, confession is is me admitting I have done this wrong. I'm not making excuses for it. I'm not rationalizing it. I'm owning it, I'm confessing it, I see it as sin, I'm not making excuses for it. That's confession. Repentance is having a change of mind towards that sin. So now it's me, that's what the word literally means, a change of mind. So literally I'm going to see my sin the way that God sees it. 
And by seeing my sin the way that God sees it, it causes me to want to repent of it, to want to turn from it. But here's what it does. It turns me away from my sin because I'm seeing it the way that God sees it. And now it's pointing me once again to see God for who he is. See, it's not just me turning away from something, but it's turning me towards someone. And that's important to understand because here's the reality. Oftentimes, we view confession and repentance as a negative thing. Don't do it as a positive thing. Like, you're like, oh man, we're talking about repentance today. Now I'm already like, ooh, what am I going to have to deal with? We oftentimes view it as a negative thing, don't we? Rather than a good and healthy thing. I think oftentimes we view repentance and confession like my little, like when my kids were little, how they used to view a bath. Like I know many of you have little kids, and I remember back to when our kids were really small, like bath time was a massive ordeal. Like it tested my sanctification every time, which is why I rarely did it and I let Lori do it. But it was like, I mean, it was basically equivalent of giving your dog a bath. Like your kids loved it as much as your dog. And so you would get your kids in the water and you would do that and, and they'd be crying or whatever it was and saying they don't want, they don't want to do that. And, what, and, and I wonder though, if some of us approach confession and repentance that way. Because hopefully for you, as you've grown older, you view taking a shower or a bath wherever you are. And here's the deal, I found that Guys like, some guys, not this guy, some guys like baths more than showers, but regardless of who you are, that hopefully there's been a progression before you were really small where you were like, man, I hate baths and I hate being clean, and now hopefully you're at a place where you actually somewhat enjoy it, right? That's what God wants. Like, we need to view confession and repentance almost like soap, Right? I'm not working for Irish Spring, so uh, it's just the soap that we had in our house. And so here's what I mean by that. Let me be very clear on this, very clear. So when I place my trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, positionally, I am clean, okay? Positionally, I am clean, that God sees me through Jesus' perfect life, not mine, Jesus' death. And Jesus' resurrection. So God sees me today, regardless of my lifestyle, God sees me today as clean because I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So positionally, I'm clean regardless of where I am. But there is a responsibility for me who has placed my trust in Jesus Christ because I'm positionally clean to live a life of holiness, to be growing in my relationship with Christ, to be sinning less because I am positionally right with God. So Ephesians 4, Paul talks about this, putting off the old man and putting on the new. And it's written in a tense that it has the idea of keep putting off the old man because we still battle the flesh. Paul says the spirit wars against the flesh. So every day I have to make a conscious choice that God, I need your Holy Spirit to empower me to live a life the way that you desire me to live it rather than the way my flesh wants to live it. And unfortunately, oftentimes I give in to the flesh and so there's a responsibility for me to do what? To confess and repent. 
to take time to actually say, man, like I actually am going to look at this as a good and healthy thing, not like a three-year-old kid who doesn't ever want to get clean. Like it's a good and healthy thing. I mean, think about it. For me, when I go into, when I, one of the benefits for me for a shower is it wakes me up. Like that time from when my alarm goes off to the time where I actually get into the shower, that time, no, I don't want to talk to anybody. So for me, one of the benefits of a shower is it wakes me up, wakes me up to go after the day. For some of us, another benefit of the shower is it causes us not to be a distraction, not to be a distraction. Like have you ever been like in an elevator or really in close close proximity to other people and all of a sudden you're like, (laughs) and what do you first do? You look at your spouse if they're with you like, seriously? Right? Or you're like, you try to be discreet about this. Like, I don't know how you be discreet, but you're like, <laughs> right? You're like checking yourself. Man, did I forget to take, put on deodorant? Do I stink? And I don't want to be a distraction. One another benefits of getting clean is so others actually want to be around you. Because here's what I find, that when I'm not living a lifestyle of repentance, it affects those around me. Like my relationship with Lori begins to stink. My relationship with my kids begin to stink. My relationship in my friendships begin to stink. And so what we need to do this morning before we even really get into this text is we need to say to ourselves, wait a minute, I'm going to stop viewing confession and repentance, admitting my sin, turning away from my sin so that I can once again turn towards God in my relationship with him, then I'm going to stop looking at that as a negative thing and look at it as a good and healthy thing. And so what I want to do this morning is give you three things, three things in this passage of Scripture. Here's the first one. When I confess and repent, I am saying and seeing. Remember, I'm having a change of mind towards my sin. That I'm seeing it the way that God sees and I'm saying, God, I confess it, I acknowledge it, I admit it, I don't make excuses for it. God, I ask forgiveness for it or the person that I've wronged and I'm going to turn from that so that I can see you for who you are once again. So when I confess and repent, I'm saying and seeing, here's the first thing, that God is great and I will declare it. Look at what it says in verse 3. Nehemiah 9 Standing on the stairs of the Levites, and he mentions these different names of the Levites. Look at what they say in verse 5. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Bless be your glorious name. Look at verse 6. You alone are the Lord. Look at the end of verse 6. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So they've just begun to confess and repent and to mourn over their sin and to have the godly sorrow that we see Paul talk about in 2 Corinthians and they're mourning over sins. But here's what the mourning and the confessing and the repentance caused them to realize once again. God, you're great. We see it afresh because we've turned from our sin and now we're seeing you for who you are. God, you're great and we're going to declare it. And they say God's great. Look at the way they describe God. He is from everlasting to everlasting. 
Like I think of Revelation 1.18, where Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Like God is not bound by time. He transcends time. And the beautiful thing about God transcending time is he's not bound by your table or my table. He's not bound by my circumstances or your circumstances, whatever they may be today. He's above them. He's greater than them. And the people of Israel say, God, we're going to recognize once again that you're great. And here's our response. We're going to declare it. You transcend time. Time, But look at what else they describe God. It says there, you made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts. Lord, we're going to recognize once again that you're the creator, not just of me, but of the entire universe. I was doing some studying this week, and I by no means am a scientist. But I started like just, just curious about how big our universe is. Because the children of Israel here in Judah, like they actually point to the awesomeness and the greatness of God and they actually make reference to the heavens. This is what I found was interesting. Do you know that the way that scientists measure our universe is not with a foot, not with a yard, not with a mile, if you're not from the States, not with a kilometer, you know how they measure? They measure it with light years. Now here's what I thought was interesting, and some of you may know this, that light travels 186,000 miles per second. Okay? So if light travels a whole year, that's 5.88 million miles. Like that's how long a light year is. 5.8 million miles miles. And what I find interesting is, you know, that's God's ruler for the universe. Like God has a 5.88 million mile long ruler, and that's how he measures stuff. It's amazing to me. You have a pic on the screen of the Milky Way, like more than a candy bar, right? The Milky Way, that's, that's the galaxy that you and I live in right now. It's called the Milky Way. Here's how wide the Milky Way is. You ready for this? 100,000 light years across. Some of you are like, I still think I'm pretty great. But here's the thing. This Milky Way contains billions of stars. And scientists say that if we were to number each star and spending a second on each star as we're counting, that it would take us 2,500 years to count all the stars in the Milky Way. Still not convinced you're not great. We have a solar system. Like we're going like real fifth, sixth grade science here today. You ready? We got this solar system. No, I don't have a model. We have this solar system. Inside of the Milky Way. And just to give you a relative size about how big our solar system is in this 100,000 light year across galaxy. If you were to take the solar system, the equivalent would be the solar system would be a quarter. And the Milky Way galaxy would be the entire North American continent. So that quarter that you have in your pocket represents our solar system 
And the Milky Way represents our entire continent that we live on. Like still feeling great. Most scientists believe that there's 500 solar systems that have been discovered already in our galaxy. 500. We're just one of them. And there are at least 100 billion galaxies that they've discovered that they think are observable in the universe. It's just, just crazy. See, we walk around thinking, man, I'm, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. Man, I am Lord. God, you're not Lord. I am Lord. We love to take that throne and to put him off of his rightful place thinking that we're great. And man, we're like, man, I'm great. I will declare it. The children of Israel, man, when they're confessing and repenting, it brings them back to this reality as they turn from their sin and once again able to focus on, God, God, you're great and we're going to declare it. And here's just one of the examples that we can look out in the stars every single night and just be brought back to the reminder that I'm not great. It's interesting when you see how big the earth is in comparison to the other planets in the sun. Like just this tiny little dot. And so on that tiny little dot are billions and billions of people, you and I being one of them. And the children of Israel say, God, you made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts. I love what Isaiah says in chapter 40. He says, to whom, or God speaks through Isaiah, I should say, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him? God says, who are you going to compare me to? To even get a remote idea of who I am. And look what he says. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who created these? Psalm 8.3 says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? How small I am. But look at this today. I'm not emphasizing that so that you can walk away thinking, well, then I'm insignificant. I'm emphasizing this today so that you can see the beauty of what David writes in Psalm 139. Listen to this, what David says. God, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would be more than the sand. That even though I'm so small in comparison to what we even know is the existing universe today, that God, in spite of that, thinks more about me than any moment of narcissism that I may have today. And the people of Israel say, God, we see our sin. We're going to confess it. We're going to repent of it so that we can see that you are great, and we want to declare it. Here's the second thing. When I confess and repent, I'm saying and seeing, here's number two, that God is good and I will believe it. Not just that God is great, and so I'm motivated, I will declare it, but here's the second thing, that when I'm confessing and repenting of my sin, that when I'm taking the, the moment to say, God, I want to be clean, man, I want to, I want to confess this, I want to turn from it, I, I want to see this as a good and healthy experience because God, I want to once again see you for who you are and I've allowed my sin to blind me to that amazing reality that I'm going to once again see as I clean myself off and I put off the old man and I put on the new, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, that I'm going to see that God is good. I'm going to believe it. 
seeing a crowd this size, I know there's people in here that are doubting that God is good. The people of Israel could have doubted that God was good. That he left them there in captivity. That he gave up on them. That he broke his promises. And honestly, from a man's perspective, someone could say God had every right to. But I love what what the Levites, what the priests lead these people in. You see, this is this prayer that we find in chapter 9 of this prayer of praise and repentance and confession and worship. And it's actually the longest history that we have of the, of the people of Israel in all of the Old Testament. So let me just highlight some things that the Levites remind themselves of in regards to goodness. First of all, they start recounting that God chose to make a covenant with Abraham that out of Abraham would be the nation of Israel, that out of Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed is the promise that God gives Abraham in the book of Genesis. And we know that that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was a Jew. Look at what it says in verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldees, and named him Abraham. Look at the end of verse 8. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. That God, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning and be reminded of your goodness and how you made a nation out of one man, Abraham. Then they recount in verses 9 through 21 God's deliverance and provision for them out of Egypt. We find in verses 9 through 21, look at what it says in verse 9. You saw the sufferings of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cries at the Red Sea. Verse 10, you sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all of his officials, against all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. Look at this. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. And then they go recording all the ways that God delivered them and provided for them with the parting of the Red Sea and all of that and the, and the wilderness journey into the land of Canaan. And then it says in verse 21, for 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. That God, you were our deliverer and you provided for ourselves in spite of what it says in verse 16, of them being stiff-necked and stubborn and arrogant, thinking that they were the reason that they had gotten out of Egypt. Believing that what we've achieved is because of us. We're going to serve other gods. That in spite of that, God still delivered them and provided for them. Then they recount in verses 22 through 25 God's strength in allowing them to claim the promised land as Joshua leads them into the promised land. Then they focus on God's compassion for them when they rebelled from him in the time of the judges. So if you read the book of Judges, here's the pattern that you find. God's people rebel, they serve other gods, then they repent, and God brings someone to, to lead them and to vanquish their enemies, and then they wander away again, and they sin, and then they repent, and then they sin again, and they repent, and God delivers them, and then they sin and repent, and God de- delivers them. It kind of sounds like you're in my life, right? And they recount that time 
and God's faithfulness in them. Look at what it says in verse 27. So you delivered them, Israel, into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you, and from heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of the enemies. And then they close out this history in verses 29 through 31, where they talk about the time of the prophets. And the time of their captivity under foreign nations. It says, by your spirit, in verse 30, you warn them through your prophets. Like you set up prophets to warn them, captivity's coming if you don't repent. Captivity's coming if you don't repent. Look, yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. Look at this. But, but, in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. Why? For you are a gracious and merciful God. God is good, and we need to believe it. And hear me on this. Some of us sit here today, and it's been a long time since we've confessed and repented of some things and gotten ourselves, though we're positionally clean, but sanctification-wise, admitting that we've sinned, admitting that we've believed a lie, admitting that, man, I've been looking for these things, or I've been looking to myself believing that I'm great, or he's great, or she's great. I've been believing that this is better than God, that that's better than God, then this is better than what I've been given through Jesus Christ. And it's time today to sit under the waters of God's grace and to cleanse ourselves from our sin, to put off the old man and put on the new and not see that as a negative thing, but see that as a positive thing so we can wash away that dirt that has caused us to see other things, to be giving us what only God can give us and to say once again, God, let me bring myself back to the amazing reality that you're great, that you're good. I don't know if you caught this or not. I've emphasized it, but I want to emphasize it again in verse 10. Look at what the Levites say. God, you've delivered us. And you know what you did when you did that? You made a name for yourself. And it remains to this day. And what I want us to understand today, that if we placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, and that's you and me today, and we've done that, hear me on this, God has made a name for himself in your life. And it remains to this day, praise God in spite of my unfaithfulness. And just like the children of Israel went all the way back to the beginning to remind themselves of God's goodness, today maybe some of us need to go all the way back to the cross to when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And just like the children of Israel say, God, you chose us, we need to remind ourselves God chose you. And God chose me. As Ephesians 1.4 says, that God chose me before the foundations of the world. And I don't know exactly how all that works with God's sovereignty and my free will, but there's a beauty in knowing that God chose me when I was unlovable. He made a name for himself in my life. And just like God delivered the children of Israel and provided for them, God's done the same thing for you and me. He's delivered me from my sin. He's given me a new name. He's given me an inheritance. He's given me a hope. 
And he has provided for me over and over and over and over again. And he's done the same for you. And maybe some of us today need to stop defining God by the one circumstance that we're in right now in this time of life. And take time, just like the children of Israel did, and say, man, I need to reflect on all the ways that God has provided for me, starting at the cross and moving forward. Because God is good and I need to believe it again. That I need to remind myself of the provision. And even though that provision in the things that I look back and I'm like, man, God, I wanted you to, to answer that in this way so bad. And when you said no, I said to myself, God, I'm struggling with that. But now I can look back five, ten years, maybe even a week later and say, I'm so glad that your provision was no. Because you provided in a better way. Just like the children of Israel, we need to remind ourselves, man, God chose me. He provided for me. He delivered me. And aren't you thankful that he gives you the strength every day to do the things that he set for you to do? Just like he said to the children of Israel, this land's yours and I'm going to give you the strength to do it. We have the strength inside of us through the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 17, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of you and me. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Ephesians 2.10, I am his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared, prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have been provided God's strength to do what he's called us to do. And aren't you thankful for God's compassion and mercy? And even today, as I look back, man, there's times in my life where I'm even thankful for those times of God's discipline. Because I needed it. And I can look back and say, God, that's just another sign that you loved me. Listen to me today. God's made a name for himself for you. It's time to turn from the sin so that you can see him once again as who he is. Man, he's good, and we need to believe it. And here's the last thing. When I confess and repent, I am saying and seeing that God is gracious and I will receive it. Aren't you thankful for God's grace? That God is gracious and I will receive it. In verses 32 through 37, we're not going to read every verse as I said, but look at verse 32. It says, now therefore our God, the great God, great God, we're going to declare it. Mighty and awesome who keeps his covenant of love. God, you're good. We're going to believe it. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. Look at what it says in verse 33. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. I mentioned this before. You don't see any regret here. See, so often, we have a lame idea of what confession and repentance is. It's not regret. Here's what regret is. It's, it's the idea that I'm sorry for the circumstances that I'm encountering. You ever have an apology that says, well, I'm sorry if you took it that way. Lame, 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 lame. Lame apology. Say that. Lame, lame. Or I'm sorry that I hurt you. Lame. Or I'm sorry that I'm experiencing these consequences. No, that's not what it, that's regret. 
What God's after is confession and repentance. God, I'm going to admit it. You don't see anywhere where the children of Israel try to push off blame. They say, no, 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 God, we know you've acted faithfully. We're the ones that have acted wickedly. We deserve what we have. We deserve being in captivity. We're going to own it. But in owning it, here's the beautiful thing. God, we're also going to call on your grace. And we're going to turn from it and know in your grace that no matter how much bad we've done, no matter how much sin we've done, it never goes further than the long arm of God's grace. And we can run to you. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about Luke 15 where Jesus gives the parable of the prodigal son. That the prodigal son basically curses his dad and goes off and does his own thing. And when he finally comes to a place that his dad knew was going to come he goes back and is expecting his dad to wag his long finger and say i told you so but instead what does his dad do he runs to him as the son runs to him and he embraces him listen we need today that when we take the time to say god i'm going to once again fall under the waters of your grace and confess and repent that we thank god and say god you are gracious I thank you for these waters of grace that get me clean, that help my sanctification. And God, I'm once again going to say, God, thank you for your grace. And man, I need it. I receive it. I receive it. You're never going to turn your grace away from me. Why? Because I'm your son or daughter positionally through Jesus Christ. I love 1 John 1.9. If you've been in church, you probably haven't memorized Where John says, the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us, not from some unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. That's our God today. And as we've heard the word today and we've heard and we've walked through this passage of scripture and we see the children of Israel and how they responded to their sin so that they could see God for who he was once again, that's what God desires for us. To see confession as a repentance as something that I need every day, that every day I need to be saying, is there something, is there somewhere where I've looked to a false savior? Is there something that I'm setting up as an idol and thinking this can give me what only my relationship with God through Jesus Christ can give me? Lord, every day I need to be asking, God, where is it that I need to confess and repent of my sin? Where is it in my relationships with my spouse, my kids, my friends, whatever it is that I need to confess and repent? Repentance needs to be a lifestyle not an event just like you ought to be taking a shower every day you we ought to be repenting every day so that we can see clearly who our God is you know I love what Paul says in Romans 2 4 to the church at Rome he says do you show contempt for the riches of his of God's kindness like would you actually look at God's kindness and say I don't want that Would you actually not want God's love when you understand that he loved you enough to send Jesus Christ to absorb the wrath that you deserved and the judgment that you deserved for your sin? Would you actually show contempt for that? But he says, if you do, you would not realize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. See, that's where we get it skewed. We think the motivation for repentance is is God's going to send down a thunderbolt and and wipe you out. 
But actually, the motivation for repentance is to remind ourselves of what? Man, God, you're great. You're good. You're gracious. It's found in Jesus Christ, God. That's what motivates me to repentance. Not about your wrath, though that's part of the gospel, but the beauty that in spite of your wrath, God, you loved me. And you do love me. That's what God wants us to point our eyes to. So I just want us to take a moment. And I just want us to take in a moment of silence and just examine our hearts. Say, God, I know this is what I need to confess. I need to repent of. God, I'm sorry for this. I'm owning this. And God, I'm asking for forgiveness of it. Maybe you need to go home today and you need to ask that of some relationship that you have. Maybe it's somebody in this room. I don't know. But your motivation for that is God's loving kindness to you. Thanks for listening to the Harvest Bible Chapel Winston-Salem podcast. For more information, visit harvestws.org.